0: Okay, let's do that. And now, coming right. to you live from the grocery room, high above the Couch Street Motel 6, it's John Stroud and Gary K. Wolf, at very, very long last, after yet another break on
1: the Couch Podcast. Hello, Gary. Oh, hello, how are you? And I think we should ask our listeners to be patient, and instead of complaining that we take too many breaks, consider that these podcasts are the breaks in our lives.
0: <laughs> and there. What in a load an- of horse, buggy. I mean, com- you, you can try and say, course. look, They're unexpected gifts now, Gary, rather than the regularly scheduled piece of programming. (laughs) I'm
1: not sure that people regard them as a gift. (laughs) People knocking on your door, unwanted annoyances
0: (laughs) late at night. Hey, look, you see, I was about to say they could always unsubscribe, but don't, listeners. This is your chance. We've never really asked this very much, but jump onto iTunes, rate us, give us five stars if you like us, or five stars if you don't, or five stars if you think we're pretty good, or recommend us something you hate.
1: Well, it's a good thing this is not a video, video video podcast. It's a good thing this is not a video podcast because then all of our listeners would see that you were in fact holding up ten fingers when you said we should get five stars. That's right because we should get two lots of five stars. probably we'll get well, none, but you know
0: off you go go to iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast downloading app is. see, my own theory is that most of the people who are getting this actually have forgotten they're subscribed and they just delete them when they download but.
1: That's very possible, but all the old podcasts are still available. Every um, single one, and and there are things. Uh, that one of the things we need to work about is work on is indexing these because sometimes when I go back and try to find a podcast, when the ones we were talking to Jean Wolf for Le Guin and that sort of thing, I think we reposted those. But there are uh, the one with Lavi Tidar. We've had some great podcasts, Jack Den and Gardner DuZois, and this is becoming an archive now. I guess there is no. I
0: mean, they're online, and if you go to uh, the podcast address, it's possible to search through them and hopefully find what you're looking for. Okay. So, yes. Um, but yes, I mean, yes, we spoke to Gene Wolfe. We spoke to Ursula Le Guin. You spoke to Harlan Ellison. Um, uh, you spoke to Sam uh, Chip Delaney for us, I think. And we have a few other got- ideas which we'll be doing in the future. But since this is our first time on the podcast for a month, why not take... Five minutes or so to catch up with what's been happening in
1: our world. What's been happening in your world, Gary? Number one thing that's happening in my world, nothing interesting is happening in my world ever. I'm retired. I'm fading away. However, today is a big day in in our mutual world because today is the publication day of Mission Critical. This is true. Thank you very much. I know you don't like to promote your own anthologies very much, and I can promote this without having read it because you didn't send me a copy. But I won't... um, you well, know, okay. <laughs> I never allocate my own books to reviewers at Locus. No, I understand that. And, uh, and and people should understand that our relationship is not at all compromised in any way.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: of course not. No, no, no. no. Okay. this, this, this is, And it's got a terrific lineup of writers in it. And it's got uh, people that almost everybody in it needs to be read more than they are, which is a hard thing to say these days. Um but here's the here's the thing that I was looking at the description of it actually this afternoon. And I kept thinking mission critical sounds really familiar. And then it doesn't just sound familiar because it's uh, it's it's something that they say in old science fiction movies when the Navy sees the UFOs coming in and that sort of thing. It reminded me of I did. I honestly did not think of this until I was musing over your title. It reminded me of the very first science fiction serial I ever read as a kid. OK, The during the couple of years, the very first magazine I ever subscribed to. And this is going to tell people how old I am, which I have carefully disguised, of course, in all these podcasts. <laughs> it was uh, a serialization of a novel by Hal Clement called Close to Critical. I wonder. Um, and, and it was it, it, it was it, it really impressed the hell out of me at the time. I've not I don't think I've reread it since then. It's not considered one of Clement's major novels, but it really had a phenomenal amount of what we now call world building in it phenomenal aliens and so forth and it started making me think about clement and there may be other writers and here's my thesis my thesis is that he's an example of a writer whose influence has outlasted his fiction
0: i think he's a example of a writer whose influence has outlasted his reputation
1: no not his reputation his fiction Well, okay. So, are you
0: saying that people there are still people out there writing who are influenced by Clement or Clement's work? mm -hmm. Uh, So they must have read it, but his reputation. Well, well, then how are you influenced? Okay, I can see how the if if name and uh, name and work disappear, but the kind of things you did continue on, then that's one. But you're saying Clement's name is continuing, but not familiarity Um. with his work.
1: I think I don't know. We could check uh, with with some of our listeners. We can check with people who are under the age of 50 to see who has read how Clement um, and and my partner Dale is waving at somebody who has done that. But by and large, except for a couple of things, uh, I, I, I'm sure he's still in print somewhere. But what he did in terms of defining a kind of hard science fiction, as I say, defining very rigorous kinds of world building, the, uh, the, the 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 mission of gravity. Actually, if you put together Close to Critical and Mission of Gravity, you've completely plagiarized Hal Clement titles, haven't you?
0: Uh, no. Okay. Yeah, all right.
1: Yeah. 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 Yes. 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 yes that's possible. But, but you could choose okay, to look okay.
0: at it in that negative light.
1: Yes, Gary. It's not a negative light at all. You're you're acknowledging a couple of very important traditions that that Clement was very good at. He was not any good at characters at all. He never pretended to be. I only met him once, and he was actually not that interesting. I mean, he was basically what I had always heard he was. He was a high school science teacher. But the idea of meticulously working out planets and working out the way um, a planet would work, that sort of thing, you can see, for example – in Charlie Jane Anders' most recent novel.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it's, there's and no I don't, doubt that that whole, you know, that the, the strand of work that you know, Clement was uh, mining, if you like, has had an ongoing, continuing influence on everyone, even when they're not really aware that that's what they're reacting to. That's because exactly they may be right. Reacting, they may be reacting to something that they've read somewhere else that's already reacting to what Clement did.
1: And Which I mean, is... I, I, I,
0: I think writers like Elizabeth Baer uh, and Scott Lynch and people like that would be very clear about
1: their relationship to the work of someone like Kyle Clement. Clement. Well, uh, uh, and that's an interesting question uh, to explore because uh, between the two of us who know a number of writers and a number of the younger writers uh, very uh, openly say they haven't read uh, – classic science fiction or not even classic science fiction older science fiction and then there are people and elizabeth the baron scott lynch seem to know a lot about the history of the field and they've read it quite quite a bit so so i would not be at all surprised to find out that they're familiar with clement but my point is that people who aren't familiar with clement as you say there's a cascading effect they're familiar with traditions that he set in motion and that uh he probably did better than anybody else in that period. I mean, this is this is, this is is an odd period. The 50s is an odd period in the history of Astounding, at least because uh, Campbell was not that influential anymore. And the kinds of stuff that Clement was doing in the 40s and 50s until his death hadn't been done much in the 40s. You don't see that kind of world building, that kind of physics-based, astronomy-based world building in Asimov and you really don't, really don't see it in the Heinlein. No. Uh, uh, and, and, and yet, it's become a continuing tradition and, and a very healthy one. And like many pioneer writers, later writers have improved on the fictional qualities of of that kind of storytelling.
0: Because, I guess I mean, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of the chronology of it. I mean, surely you know someone like Niven would have been part of the banner you know, passing. Yeah. Someone like like a Niven or a Pornell. Uh, Would have been very very familiar, and also your your killer bees, your Benford, your Bears, your Brins—they would have been very very much exposed to that. They would have passed that approach that to to some to some work work and some kinds of stories on to younger generation. What surprises me when you talk to you know writers who are in the first ten years of their careers right now is that. It's a little bit tricky to, to set up a matrix, but I think if you look at writers who create what Gardner does, well would have called core science fiction, mm. they are well, well aware of exactly this kind of thing. I think you Levite, Tidhar, and whatever, very, very well aware of how how Clement and Seal, Moore, and whoever else. Oh yeah. Uh, it's when you move into your Tamson Muir's and. Your,
1: I would bet you that you and Halle would be familiar with Hal Clement. It's very possible, and I have no idea who is and who isn't. It'd be uh, He's simply one example of somebody who, um, I think you're right, the middle generation, the, 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 the Bears and the Benfords and the Brins, they read Hal Clement as a kid, as yeah, I did, yeah. uh, Joe Haldeman. Uh, but then you get into a generation of people who are in their 20s um, some may have. There are people who are students of science fiction who grew up loving it. There are any number of things I've seen in um, interviews mostly uh, where people say, I grew up reading science fiction because my dad had some around the house Um and so, and if your dad had stuff around the house, he's probably going to have old Signet and Ballantine paperbacks from the 50s. Um, so the one thing there's that that, some
0: of true, though, uh, for a variety of reasons. Is that you're not going to stumble across Hal Clement in 2019? You have no. to be looking for Hal Clement if you're going to encounter his work. You know, it's possible. That probably the, the 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 sole real exception I can think of in my experience is, I think at least Mission to Gravity. Is in the SF Masterwork series in print. I think it is, right. And those books are actually in stores, and you could stumble across them, at least in the the British Commonwealth territories. I think. But you're right. In the US, you're not going to
1: stumble across them in Barnes and Noble. No, you're not going to find them, and and I don't know whether they're available in ebook form. They probably are to some extent. But the point is, you're right. You're not going to stumble across them. You can't if you're going to look for. For writers of that rank, which I think of this, probably the second rank of historical writers, you know, not the Asimov's and Clark's and Heinlein's and Bradbury's, but the people who are solid, uh, in some cases, better writers. In fact, Clifford Simak is another one. I think uh, I'm I'm just thinking of writers who I think have influenced people who don't know they've been influenced by him. Um, Simak just comes to mind because this whole notion of pastoral science fiction, uh, small town kinds of things that uh, shows up in I think I think I think Simac shows up in Spielberg movies mm-hmm. this sort of valorization of the small town midwest sort of thing that he did. Uh he's another example. A third example that comes to mind is Jack Vance. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced that there are generations of writers um who have picked up Jack Vance Jack Vance by way of Gene Wolfe for example.
0: Fair. I think it's a fair, a fair observation. I would also suggest that possibly, and this would be an interesting piece of research for someone else to do because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm busy or lazy, and that is possibly Ted Sturgeon has had what, the broadest impact or one of the broadest kinds of impact on the kind of fiction that is valued today in science fiction and fantasy.
1: Uh, you use the word impact instead of influence, which is interesting. Um I'm not sure it's the same thing. I think the idea of writing very literate human stories with science fictional elements in them, the idea of exploring gender, which almost nobody but Sturgeon was doing back then, uh, has clearly influenced lots of later writers in in all kinds of ways. And I think you're right. The kinds of literary, well-crafted short stories that are valued today, there are some classic Sturgeon stories that you could put into It'd be, it might be a stretch to say you could put them into an issue of conjunctions, but you could certainly put them into a, a, a strange horizons, for example. Or um,
0: uncanny. I mean, you know, I mean, he, you know a, a slightly modernized looking Ted Sturgeon story would fit into uncanny, yeah, without any problem at all. You know, it's very much their sort of territory. Uh, and I would expect to still that he would it would still be read well today. There might be a few variations, but basically, yeah. The, the difference is, and this is something we were talking about privately. Uh, mm-hmm. His reputation right now seems to be fading, which is unfortunate because he's one of those writers that strikes me has a greater connection to modern writers and readers than people would expect.
1: I think, as fiction, you're you're making a very good point uh, because with 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 people like Vance and Simak and and, 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 um, and Clement, I was talking about a certain kind, a certain theme of science fiction, the the idea of the far future of science fantasy romance in Vance, the idea of the pastoral Midwestern exceptionalism in Simak and the hard SF of, of Clement. Sturgeon, as a purely literary influence, is probably more important than any of those writers. Uh, and we've seen from recent public, uh, you know, more or less, public Facebook post from Samuel R. Delaney, how much he felt he owed to Sturgeon as a writer. Um, and uh, the question is, uh, are, are people reading Sturgeon at all or are they simply reading about Sturgeon?
0: I think that, well, first of all, I don't think they're reading about Sturgeon unless they're reading deeply into the field. Well, that probably uh, is true. I know that vintage had in print a selected stories of Sturgeon's. And that's probably the only thing that anyone would ever encounter. There may be something in um, the masterworks. Though, I mean, to be fair, Sturgeon was
1: never a novelist. No. So, um, and, and, yeah. and more than human, which since we're not plugging ourselves, people can pick up in the Library of America, is really uh, a novella with a couple of sections added. It's not, as many people think, three novellas. It was a novella which he wrote two additional sections to. Yeah,
0: And look, allowing that, I'd probably disagree with the table of contents for the selected stories because there's probably something I think should be in there. Nonetheless, it's probably, you know, like if you're out there listening and you're going, well, okay, I will try Theodore Sturgeon because you're saying that he's someone that I should try, right? Then Hmm. you absolutely, you know, should grab the selected stories. It's missing, I'm just looking at the table of contents now, several of my personal all-time favorite Theodore Sturgeon stories. So you know, but it's still a, a good introduction, and that's that's what's needed, Um because you, you know his work is just fading, and I, I and it's it's not something that the, the, this fading process, which is actually mm-hmm. natural, we we complain about it, we sit there and go, oh, it's terrible that you know when I was X years old, this was what readily available, and now it's not. So you get that right. thing where you know, there yeah, you know, when I was twenty five years old, well, when when I was twenty five years old. You know, it was 1989. And so, of course, used books from 1970 were readily available. Right. And went through used bookstores in the United States, used bookstores, books from the 1950s were readily available. Well, you know, now it's 2019 and, you know, 30 more years of processing have happened. I mean, it's unfortunate that the major book chains have changed the way they have in many ways. So depth of stock on shelves isn't what it would be. But there's still that 30 years of book of, of books, you know. Sort of, i dare say most Werner Vinge isn't on bookstore bookshelves.
1: Uh, I, I, I suspect that's true. Every once in a while, I'll go Speaking down and look at my who local bar. connect stuff. to Hal Clement. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And 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 somebody who's uh, of an age to probably be directly influenced by Hal Clement. But I think we're making an interesting distinction here between literary influence and like conceptual influences, because. Um, well, Bradbury, no, Bradbury. Sturgeon is important conceptually as well. You have a lot of people now who are interested in reading back into the history of, genre, of, of, of gender in science fiction. And if you really want to understand how that evolved, you, you won't find much there except in a Sturgeon story like uh, uh, Venus Plus X or The World Well Lost, which is one of his best stories. I hope it's in the vintage collection. And uh, Venus Plus, plus X? No, not Venus Plus sex. It should be a world well lost, The World Well Lost. Uh, nope. Oh, wow. That's awful. The actual con- wow.
0: uh, contents are Thunder and Roses, The Golden Helix, Mr. Costello Hero, Bianca's Hands, The Skills of Xanadu, Killdozer, Bright Segment, The Sex Opposite, The Widget, The Wodget and Boff, It,
1: A Way of Thinking, The Man Who Lost the Sea, and Slow Sculpture. That's an odd... Well, no, it's not odd. They're, they're, most of the ones in there are kinds of classics. But my point is this. They're, they're kind of classics trying to represent Sturgeon's breadth. There's a horror story, classic horror story, It. Uh, classic Machines Gone Wild story with Killdozer, which I think was made into a TV movie at one point. Um, but that's he. It, it wasn't that he did something in every subgenre. It's that what he did simply as con- in terms of constructing short stories was enormously powerful. Mm. Uh, Bianca's hands is it, it, it jumps out at me when you mention it, it's about somebody basically with an obsession over a, a young girl's hands, the young girl who is in every other way of no interest to him whatsoever. Um, and it deals with kind of sexual obsession in a way that nobody else would deal with um, at the time. So if you look at a story and it's a beautifully crafted story around that idea, uh, a saucer of loneliness is a beautifully crafted story around one idea. But I think what makes those stories worthwhile is the, the craft. As you say, the craft could show up in any number of zines today and seem not dated at all. Whereas if you took an average Hal Clement story, no. It's, it's going to look pretty clumsy in terms of the art of the short story, let's say.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's true of a lot of fact-based, theory-based science fiction. Mm. add 50 years to it and it seems pretty darn clunky pretty darn ridiculous I mean if you look at the, the background to particularly the Heinlein juveniles and that yeah. whole why that juvenile sort of idea of you know, building a rocket in your backyard so you could go to space kind of thing which is a lovely fantasy yeah it's terrible science fiction in some ways you know it's utterly nonsensical and these mm-hmm. you know th- these kind of uh, ex- <laughs> almost exclusionary kind of science fantasies about wealthy people starting their private space programs of course you know i say that at a time when wealthy people are starting have their own private space programs so i shouldn't be too smug about it because after all that's exactly <coughs> what bezos is doing and what uh, musk is doing
1: Bezos and Musk are not twelve year old kids in the backyard
0: of no, some no, Missouri But I was gonna say the, the the other thing that comes from that period that I remember, and I'm sure there's lots that I'm just not remembering. Yeah. There's there's the YA trope of kids building their rocket ship in the backyard. But then there's also right. the super wealthy industrialist, the Tony Stark type figure. Right, who, exactly. Who, and that also is has a strong history in science fiction, and that's what Bezos and Musk are very much in the tradition of.
1: And you can see ancestors of those people in Heinlein. they not in the man who sold the moon and uh, Waldo. Uh, in other words, he, he he knew that there was going to be a large private enterprise sort of move into in the future. But you're right. I think that sort of thing gets dated in a way that I hate to use the term literary science fiction doesn't get dated. One, 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 one statement that Bradbury made, because Bradbury was another writer who was clearly on the literary side. I mean, as <coughs> as a science fiction inventor of mars people have decided to use bradbury's mars in the same way they decided to use burroughs's mars but his science fiction ideas were derivative and not very interesting they were standard ideas handled with a great deal of literary flair and what he said at one point was that science fiction isn't there to teach you about science it's there to teach you about wonder and wonder was a tangible concept for that class of writers and it still mm-hmm. is i mean the people who thought okay, we just have to make people absolutely astonished at what the world and the universe is. And I think that's never gone away.
0: No. And I think it's still a
1: value that's uh, prized in modern science fiction. mm -hmm. And it's, it's harder and harder to, I think, develop that sense of wonder because so much of what was wondrous even 20 years ago is kind of, okay, yeah, all right, fine. Uh, You know, Elon Musk is – you can now buy your way onto the International Space Station for only $20 million round trip or something.
0: Well, I I think also there's a thing where some of these things, like
1: the sense of wonder in many ways, are Mm -hmm.
0: what what I would call extra literary uh, values. You know, they're not about the quality of the prose. They're about the impact of the idea and how it's revealed. Oh,
1: I think think they are about the quality of the prose. I think really – well, I mean, one of the things, and I re- re-read some Bradbury stories lately, and one of the things that works about the Martian Chronicles uh, is, as science fiction, it's actually probably no dumber now than it was in 1950. Uh, his, his view of Mars is completely uh, a romantic construct and a commentary on, you know, the American society in 1950. So the wonder there comes from the prose, from the descriptions, from the fact that he's created a wonderful fantasy land, um, which nobody believes, I don't think nobody believed even when these stories were appearing in the 40s that this is anything like Mars. Oh, no, I um, think they're always a fantasy of Mars. Exactly. But the fantasy of Mars, a complete. a I mean, even, even Edgar Rice Burroughs um, created that sense of absolute wonder with prose that wasn't very good and with ideas that were totally unconvincing. So I'm arguing that I know sense of wonder has become a cliche, but it's so little explored as an idea because I don't think it derives from bizarre scientific concepts um, entirely. And I don't think it derives from prose entirely. I think it's a third factor. So when was the last time you encountered it
0: in science fiction? You read as widely as anybody in the field.
1: Well, I'm not – okay, I'll back up a minute. It's not the only thing I'm looking for in science fiction. Uh, Every once in a while, a writer will come along. I I, I hate hate to try to focus on one or two works. Uh, The first few times I read Greg Egan's stories, it was a different way of looking at the universe. I thought, okay, there were simple things that um, I guess – any computer programmer knows about that you can simply alter your perception of time. If you're digital, you can just, you know, expand the centuries. And, and I thought that that's kind of mind blowing. Uh, It's mind blowing. It's a hard SF concept. There's no reason it shouldn't work. Um, I got the sense of wonder. The first couple of Ted Chang stories I read um, because again, there was a notion that you could take um, uh, uh, any, any cosmology and make, a wondrous science fiction story. His very first story, uh, "Tower of Babylon," yeah. uh, was about climbing a, a mountain until you pass the moon and stars, and uh, you know you're somehow up in the firmament. And I, I thought, you know, this is not even science fiction, but it's science fiction in terms of its evocation of the sense of wonder. And he's trying, I think, more or less successfully, to evo- to evoke the kind of sense of wonder that maybe Babylonians felt in believing in this cosmology.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Do you think the sense of wonder can be evoked in fantasy?
1: Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, one way of answering it is that fantasy is nothing but the sense of wonder. And another way of answering it is that, no, it can't be in fantasy because the sense of wonder has to be cognitive to use Darko's servants. To, and it has to be something that we can connect with our own experience. In other words, someday... I, everybody at my age, uh, when we were kids, thought we would get to the moon. We personally would get to the moon. Mm-hmm. That was a sense of wonder. The idea, we can go from here to there, or we can... Uh, now, one of the things is we can become completely digital. Um, so that's a kind of wonder as to what might happen to you in your life. And I don't think fantasy offers that kind of wonder. What is is a sense of wonder actually mischaracterized
0: as a response to a particular kind of piece of information, or is it a categorization of a kind of emotional response? Um, My guess would be the latter. And Um, if it's a categorization of a kind of emotional response, then surely, theoretically, any kind of fiction could evoke it.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think that's that's one of the things where science fiction has gotten a little bit um, full of itself. There are mainstream novels. Uh, there's a, one of the novels I read, uh, one of the, I think, great novelists who actually can do this, he's not a science fiction writer, uh, is E.M. Forster, whose Passage to India uh, probably isn't even his best novel. But there's a scene in there, these mysterious Marabar caves in India, which clearly evokes a, a kind of mystical sense of wonder. And that that may be one, one of the areas where uh, science fiction and fantasy overlap because you do have these the sense of imminence in fantasy. This is, this is this is an idea we probably should have thought about this and before we started talking because we're now thinking aloud, which is always well, dangerous.
0: Well, it is I mean, because I kind of wonder if the, the, the sense of wonder ends up being some kind of some kind of variation on agape.
1: Well, maybe um, the, the, the the work that comes to mind now. I'm, I'm trying to think of fantasies that evoke a sense of wonder. Little bit. One of the ones. Big. Hmm. Little big? Um, Little big because it suggests that there's a world, you know, there are fairies at the foot of the garden. There's a world you can almost get at. The one I was going to mention was um, Mathago Wood. Sure. Wonderful. Robert Holstock. And when I read Mathago Wood... I he almost convinced me that I could walk out into the woods in certain parts of England and find mythagos. I yeah, figured yeah. there's something out there. And he wasn't the first one to do that. He knows perfectly well that Arthur Mackin and uh, other people did it. Horror writers can do that as well. Uh, but but, but you it, have
0: it's lies not so much the temptation or the attraction of mythagos as it is the love and fear of the forest, of the wood. I think it is. Uh, and and think, there's, there's, there, there's,
1: if you like, a sense of wonder about that mm-hmm i'm agreeing with you i think um of all the uh, neil gaiman novels that are popular the one that most successfully evokes a sense of wonder for me is the ocean at the end of the lane which is a very personal novel about very personal emotions and feelings and that sense of of imminence of possibility i find that more powerful than uh than something like american gods which is which is entertaining And and well thought out. It's a good adventure. It's a little bit shaggy. uh, But the idea that there is a possibility that you might have access to can be conveyed by a good fantasy. And I'd be willing to guess it could be conveyed by a good horror story, too. Sure, sure.
0: I mean, I don't know what this adds up to, the idea that, in fact, the sense of wonder is not unique to science fiction, and I'm sure it's not a unique observation. And I'm pro- sure there are people who listen there going, oh. And, and people who were listeners and may still be listeners, I would have thought yeah. that the Farrah Mendelssohns of the world would
1: probably be rolling their eyes at us going, yes, of course. But well, no. yes. But my, my, my point is that the sense of wonder is a term that we've all been throwing around for decades and without really exploring how it's done, I think, or how it works as a, as a kind of technique, it's it's something that writers can do, and some writers can do it better than others. Um, if we live in a world,
0: sorry to, to, mm-hmm. to sort of sh- shoot this across your mouth, if we live in a world where the dominant science fiction writer's philosophy, if that's the right way of putting it, mm-hmm. would be Phil Dick's paranoia,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where in the current flush of fiction, maybe one of the, the dominant uh, mindsets would be that that Sturgeon was a part of, right? Mm-hmm. Where does this sense of wonder now fit? It, is, it, is there space for a sense of wonder when we, it, it feels like the world is dying?
1: Well, uh, the idea that the world is imminently dying is a version of the sense of wonder. As I say, the sense of wonder, the, the sense of wonder, when, when people talk about it, in terms of literary history, they go back to the sublime. They go back to Ruskin's idea of the the, the terror and beauty of the sublime, which was a way of perceiving nature uh, that goes back way back before the Victorians. But uh, But the idea that beauty and terror are all one part of one thing, there's an argument that people, writers have always tried to do this. I think what we're talking about is how people do it, within a set of genre conventions. You're right. Evoking the sense of wonder is something uh, a, a good poet can do it without a narrative at all. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm making a distinction between what we might call, well, the secondary world fantasies. Um, does Tolkien really evoke a sense of wonder? Uh, in one looking at wonder from one angle. No, he doesn't because we can't get to that world from here. That's a completely imaginary world. He evokes sure. a sense of, of myth Uh, And it's very powerful. Uh, And I, on the other hand, uh, something which has some kind of logical connection to our own world, even if it's a supernatural connection, can be very wondrous. Actually, I I was reading a novel today by a writer who you've heard me complain about many times is way underrated lisa goldstein has a new novel coming out uh which is interestingly enough about a family whose great aunt has written a a classic fantasy novel and Mm -hmm. gone into seclusion for the rest of her life and there, there are two or three stories that deal with people who've written classic novels and and this actually evokes a very clear sense of wonder for me because it's so grounded in other words it's fantasy grounded in Possibility, remote possibility. Mm-hmm. But it's like, what, all you have to do is give Goldstein one thing and she runs with it. And she conveys a very effective uh, and frightening. It turns into kind of a horror story from time's time to um, <clears> time. <throat> I think that um, there are, let me, let me see if I can make an example out of Stephen King, who I've not read all of Stephen King, um, but Steve. Okay. I will give you an example of the, uh, Stephen King's *The Mist* for me evokes a sense of wonder, because for no other reason because I've been in the supermarket when it's foggy outside, um, and you think, okay, what's out there in the fog? Stephen King's uh, *The is, Dark Is that equating how- the
0: sense of wonder with just a attraction to the unknown?
1: No, with a, with a grounding in the known, not an attraction to the unknown. Because a, a grounding that there's a, a kind of. Um, barrier a transition between the known and the unknown and that transition for me has to be there i don't find stephen king's the dark tower to convey that sense of wonder uh it seems to me it takes place completely in a kind of cosmic lens and it's very impressive Uh, don't get me wrong i'm not saying it's it's an inferior work for that but it's it's not something that uh suggests an interface between our known world and the unknown world Mm. What they used to call eminence, what I think G.K. Chesterton called eminence, I-M-M-A-N. So people don't think I'm talking about gray eminences and that sort of thing. Sure. I'm not sure where it goes, uh, but I think that uh, in terms of science fiction, it's more and more difficult to convey the kind of wonder that you could at the beginning of the, uh, of the genre. I mean, the idea of going to the moon, if you read a good translation of Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon – it's wondrous. It's just you you, you, you have you, you, you believe in nineteenth century science. You read Jules Verne today as though you're reading a Ted Chang story based in nineteenth century uh, science. And the idea of going to the moon is just wondrous in that novel. Do you think that the difference between the two things you're talking about, what you
0: you you see in, say, pre nineteen fifties or fit nineteen fifties science fiction and the, the present day is that we are we are no longer enamored with and no longer
1: have faith in frontiers. I do. I, I, I suspect that that is one of the things that science fiction has been grappling with for most of its 20th and 21st century histories. Um, you know, the classic view of science fiction was that it was, well, the final frontier. Um, I'm not sure anybody really believes that anymore um, in the but sense that...
0: But isn't it more complicated than that as well? I mean, I'm not saying that what I'm about to say is unique in the history of thought about science fiction, because it's not, Mm -hmm. but it's whether it's more dominant, I suppose. And that is that even if you felt that there was a frontier, a physical frontier of some kind, Mm -hmm. a place for humanity to go, whatever it might have been, wouldn't there now be a greater sensitivity to the idea of where you're going and changing that place and doing things to that place, basically becoming the invader, the you know, whatever else, you know, so that you create colonial situations.
1: Isn't that something we are now much more sensitive about? I agree, and I think this is something which is it's 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 not entirely new. I mean, the word for world is forest is more than 50 years old oh, now, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and 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 so we're certainly sensitive to that, and I think we're also sensitive to the idea that moving toward new frontiers doesn't necessarily only mean that we will become colonialists or invaders, but that we will take our own problems with us. Um, one of the novels, another novel we can uh, we can plug, because I think it's just coming out in paperback now, uh, is uh, River Solomon's An Unkindness of Ghosts, which is a generation starship story. But it's a generation starship story in which white supremacy and slavery and and class distinctions and oppression are simply part of the generation ship. In other words, it's a it's a literalization of the idea. We're just going to take our problems with us and potentially a suggestion that we're going to make them even worse. Um, And I I think what we're getting now is uh, with that novel, um, with um, Stan Robinson's Aurora, we're getting this kind of critique of those old dreams of um, of frontiers. That, well, yeah, but know. I think
0: it also comes hand in hand with this whole idea that we are more inclusive about different viewpoints within fiction generally. That more, we're more aware of LGBTQI plus people. That we're more mm-hmm. aware of other cultures. That we're more interested in fiction and translation and with the viewpoints that come from that. That all comes together into an area where this the idea of uh, conquerable frontiers, right? No longer is a uh, an attractive or a palatable or a comfortable one. Actually, interestingly, now that I think about it, I'm not sure, and I'd have to go and read and think about it. I don't know how much fiction I've seen that's directly science fiction that's directly about discomfort with, with the frontier. Um, I'd have to think about that. I'd, I mean, I, arguably, I, I, arguably, uh, Stan Robinson's Aurora is a rejection of a frontier. Mm-hmm. But then that's not about the frontier. It's,
1: in principle, it's that this particular one is not viable, is his argument. Oh, this might, in his case, his mechanism. his argument there is that uh, frontiers are a dangerous idea. If you're dealing with severe climate change and an actual <clears throat> imminent global catastrophe, imminent in at least a historical sense, then the idea of a frontier as an escape is a dangerous idea. And there's there have long been arguments by American historians, some of them more or less discredited that, you know, American democracy sort of depended on an infinitely extendable frontier for 200 years until we got to California. And then I think, guess what? There was an ocean. So <laughs> then we're supposed to the moon and Mars and so forth and so on. So the idea was that, you know, the, the, the great westward movement. There was one, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner is the American historian who wrote about that. but there was some, uh, student of Turner's, I forget his name, who claimed that the whole history of Western civilization was a Westward movement caused by the great wall of China. In other words, once everybody tried to invade China and you realize, oh, there's a wall. So they decided, oh, let's go West and invade there. And they, Genghis Khan and everybody else started going West from then on. And it ended up with basically San Francisco, um, Okay, there, there's a lot of goofy historical thinking, but the point is a lot of that goofy historical thinking was absorbed by the science fiction and fantasy writers of that era. Um, and they believed it and they used that to create this kind of myth of the endless frontier. How much of the myth of the frontier do you
0: think is a myth of capitalism? Um, capitalism yeah. is based... You know, it, it, in some ways, capitalism is a little bit like... A, stoked, a, a, a a train that has a coal-fired engine at the front of it that has to have something thrown into it to burn so that it can keep oh, okay. going forward.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, I was, I was, okay, we're in agreement there. Go ahead. So, then, so, cap, so capitalism is basically that it, it has to
0: have a new frontier to consume. It needs the next thing it, to keep consuming so that the whole thing can work. Otherwise because once you stop consuming, then the whole thing kind of just falls over in a horrible heap, right? If you're not well, shoved the them. front of the mall like some ram scoop. Isn't a right. you know, sort of isn't that what the whole frontier fiction and ultimately that style of frontier fiction for science fiction is?
1: I think it is, and I think a lot of the post-scarcity science fiction that's uh appeared in the last 40 years ian banks for example has been a critique of that notion the the frontier constantly needs new resources and to use the american model again uh you know okay those resources at one point are buffalo at another point it's it's minerals another point it's timber at another point it's gold and and eventually you run out and then you get science fiction stories about what Mining the asteroids and <laughs> discovering gold on Mars and, and mine, it, we're, and we're still doing that. I mean, the whole idea behind uh, the, the the Ian McDonald and John Kessel and other Moon novels we've seen all uh, the, the impetus for doing that is pure capitalism. There are saleable commodities we can find on the Moon, uh, whether or not they're really there isn't the point. But so I think the argument today uh, you'll see among uh, some of the thoughtful science fiction writers is that. Capitalism isn't necessarily a good thing, but nevertheless, it's going to be. It might very well be what provides the capital for expansion into the uh, the outer solar system. I mean, even even uh, Paul McCauley uh, yeah, has dealt yeah. with you know. So it's 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 a, it's a kind of odd uh, oddball uh, way of looking at history, but it's a, it's a useful way of looking at history. And so I think no one tie this back to where we started with Hal Clement. Um. Well, probably not. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the Crude Street Podcast. <laughs> I, well, so, I think the whole generation, the whole generation, and, and some of this uh, some of this is not really covered in Alec Neville book, Astounding, because he, he, he can't really spend much time writing a historical critique of science fiction of that period. But Clement bought into that idea, this idea which uh, Donald Walheim, called consensus cosmogony for example uh, was just the it it was was Heinlein's future history codified for all science fiction writers. we'll go to the moon we'll go to the Mars we'll we'll go to Mars we'll go to the uh, asteroids and eventually other planets because there's stuff out there we want and it's always going to be motivated by by some kind of a uh, materialistic motive which is basically capitalism I think that is being Critiqued. I don't think it's just now being critiqued. I think to some extent, uh, Frederick Pohl, who was, uh, and, and C.M. Kornbluth, who were the two premier crit- critics of capitalism back in the 50s, were the ones that began to write stories about post scarcity societies. Mm-hmm. What happens? You actually arrive at a place where people don't need to constantly consume new materials in order for society to uh, advance. Uh, and I think I think that's still an issue that uh, comes up today in science fiction. I'm trying to think of a good example of a post scarcity, other than Ian Banks, because the whole um, series was more in or other less based words,
0: on. Uh, wasn't Accelerando the Charlie Stross thing? Post scarcity. Yeah, Accelerando,
1: yeah, very much.
0: I'm sure that uh, Cory Doctoro has done it, maybe in the background of Little Brother. There's been a couple of things where, where you you, know, you get the whole post scarcity idea, right? Which is kind of like another thing, but does roll on because we have a Finite amount of time. There's a couple of things I wanted to touch on, if I can. Okay. First of all, you know, we plugged my book, Mission Critical, in stores now. Mm-hmm. We suggest that people should pre-order or should go order a copy of Selected Stories of Theodore Sturgeon if they do not have it. There's two books yep. that I've worked on lately, which I want to plug because I don't get any money from them, so it's okay. One of which you've read, and that mm-hmm. is the Lord uh, is, is the the Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday by Saad Hussain, which is coming mm-hmm. out, I think, in September which is a novella from Tor.com. And it strikes me as one of, in retrospect, I didn't really think about it at the time, one of the most timely things that I've edited in a long time. And I'll tell you why. Okay, tell you, think me you already, why. I think you already know. I mean, just to let I, everybody I, I, know, it's kind of like it's a buddy story that starts off like a fantasy about this djinn that wakes up on wakes up a mountaintop after a long period of time, comes down the mountaintop, encounters this cranky old Gurkha, and they go off to Kathmandu. Mm-hmm. Which has completely changed because it's a 21st century, uh, mid-future kind of Kathmandu, and it's been overtaken by this AI that measures all of the worth of everybody, and uh, through this system called Karma, which is almost exactly mm-hmm. like what's being built in China right now—the social credit scheme—that's going to kick off, uh, I think, next year that they've been piloting. So it's actually really timely. It's enormous. The, the story itself is hugely fun, I think.
1: The story is Very entertaining. It's, it's and it's, it's a cranky buddy comedy. I mean, I, I, I thought at one point, okay, this is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in a myth, which turns into a a post-scarcity Hanu Rai over uh, – it's not just that karma that uh, this AI – which is it's it's not an AI actually it's an algorithm. He makes <laughs> this point, which is kind of interesting. It ha- makes no judgments. It simply tots up people's points. Yeah, and and therefore there's no real reason for people to work. There's no motivation. It's 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 an ideal society, except that it isn't. It's 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 a it's a critique of its own kind of utopia. I mean, these characters basically are bringing chaos into this overregulated system. And as we find out, the the system gets more and more ominous as the novel goes. And there's a lot of stuff packed into that story. But I think, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that would be one of the most current examples of of a a model of a post-scarcity science fiction society, even though it is pure fantasy at the beginning. It's one of those complete genre-bending things.
0: Though also, Um, don't don't forget, and this is not to ruin it for people who haven't read it yet, but uh post-scarcity in the bubbles where the post-scarcity applies. Yes, right. You know, because it's actually, you know, outside the bubble of these cities where things are stable and fine, things are not stable and fine.
1: No, the whole... And, uh, the, uh, the, uh, yeah, right. The, the idea that the world is a dangerous place, and but the point is it's, it uses very sophisticated notions of nanotechnology that are hard, hard SF notions. Yeah, um, And Saad, who had a good story... In, we should also yeah. mention it's a Bangladeshi author living in yeah. Bangladesh, I believe. Uh, and since I just recently read a, 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 a bunch of South Asian science fiction stories from the Golang's book of South Asian science fiction, there's a completely different view of the world coming from that part of the world. And I, I'm, I'm glad that this was on tour.com. I'm glad we're beginning to see some more South Asian authors appear because they're not like Korean authors. They're not like Japanese authors. They're not like Chinese authors. Um, and if I knew enough to make a distinction, I'm sure that Bangladeshi authors are a lot different from uh, from Pakistani or Indian authors. But and actually, I don't know not that I was books.
0: going to mention it immediately, but I don't know if you also saw, and I would recommend this to people, because you can buy mm-hmm. it digitally on American ebook retail sites. But Hachette mm-hmm. India, who produced the Golan's Book of uh, South Asian Science mm-hmm. Fiction, has also produced a book called Magical Women, which is a mm-hmm. book of science fiction stories by women from India. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just came out in the last month or two and that looks really 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 interesting and unlike a little bit there's like one or two of the other books doesn't so much depend on writers who are also well known in the west to round out the popularity of the book so mm-hmm. yeah magical women edited by sukanya Venk- i'm gonna not even try that but that's worth worth checking checking out magical women the other book i was going to mention this one you haven't mm-hmm. read yet right Ah. in November, but there will be arcs available, I think, in some quantity at WorldCon in Dublin, and that is the new novella from WorldCon guest of honor Ian MacDonald, "The Menace from Earth." Sorry, the uh-huh. men- no, "The Menace from Farside," which goes to show that I've read too much Heinlein when I was young. Yes, what uh, uh, The Menace and The Menace from Farside is great. I mean, like, I love it. Uh It's a completely different sort of thing to The Gurkha and Lord of Tuesday. Of Tuesday. It's a kind of prequel. Well, it is a prequel of sorts in the sense that it's set before uh, the Lunar Trilogy on the Moon.
1: Oh, really? It's the same yeah. general future history. It's, it's the same, it's the
0: same universe, though nothing that happens in it pertains to the Lunar Trilogy. And you have no need to have read anything else whatsoever. It's its own standalone bubble I'm- of a story. You could have said it in a different, on a different moon. And what it uh-huh. basically is, is it's Stand By Me on the Moon. Really? It's four, it's four teenagers going on a deadly hazardous journey across the surface of the moon in order to find Neil Armstrong's footprint. Huh. So that they can photograph it as a wedding gift for their parents.
1: It sounds very sweet. It's but mu- the- it, it's full
0: of humor and tension and adventure. Mm-hmm. And all things.
1: great story. Love it. Just love it. And it's completely different from his last novella, which I think you also edited, Time Was, which, which was that. also... It's a beautiful story, and it, it's it's also a romance. I mean, this hmm. is the interesting thing about MacDonald is that he's... And he knows this. He's at heart a romantic. Oh, very much. I think very much so. Uh, it's
0: what makes his his work so beguiling. So, so, yes, so I would recommend both of these novellas, which I'm biased, I edited and acquired, so take that with your pinch of salt, but... I love them. There's some other great work coming out from tour.com and other places, and I'm not really uh, suggesting this is better, but it's what it is and it's well
1: worth it. I've I'm reck- looking forward. Let me, do we do we have like three minutes left to make a record? Here's a bizarre recommendation. We've got about 10 minutes left and I've got another subject, so let's give me yours. Okay, no, we're just recommending things randomly. Um, Well, no, you're not recommending things randomly because you've edited them and you know what they are, and the Ian McDonald thing sounds wonderful. But you mentioned The Far Side of the Moon, and that triggered something where I don't know, maybe more serious science fiction fans than I have seen this years ago. I had never seen Fritz Lang's movie The Woman in the Moon, which was the epic movie he made after uh, Metropolis. It's nothing like Metropolis. It was uh, based on a novel by his wife, Taya Von Harbu, Um, and it's three hours long, which I don't necessarily recommend the first hour and a half because it's a melodrama set in Berlin in 1929. It's a 1929 film. And then you get to the part where they're actually going to the moon. And uh, the special effects are even a little bit impressive today, but what was more impressive is that you have this gigantic uh, moon rocket being built in an enormous building that looks exactly like the Vehicle Assembly Building at Cape Canaveral. And then, and then the thing is rolled out on dual tracks to the launch pad, which look a lot like the railroad tracks that they used in, 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 in Cape Canaveral. It's launched out of a pool of water, which wasn't quite what the actual launch was. I mean, they, they used a lot of water coolant to keep the heat. And then it turns out once they, once they take off, um, it's a three-stage rocket. Uh, they, they drop off the first stage. They drop off the second stage. They uh, they're suffering multiple Gs during takeoff. Mm-hmm. Um, they have they don't have Velcro to get around, but they have leather straps sort of nailed onto the floor so they can slip their hand their feet into them and walk around in zero gravity. The amount of Solid science fiction thought in that movie, in many ways, is more advanced than what we saw in Destination Moon in 1950. So if anybody's interested in just really ahead of its time science fiction, I'm suggesting the last night, well, the last hour of uh, (laughs) The Woman in the Moon, because it's, it's, it's really long. And it showed up here in the States on Turner Classic Movies a couple of weeks ago, and it occurred to me, I'd never seen it. And I was surprised at a hard science fiction movie from 1929 that really holds up as science fiction. Um, I later found out that Hermann Oberth and Willie Lay were both advisors on the film. Oh, well, there you go. I actually <laughs> have two may have things had- left, left to go with. One mm-hmm.
0: ties into the work that I should be doing now instead of recording the podcast. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite dragon or dragon book or dragon story?
1: Actually, the first one that comes to mind when you mention that is Kenneth Graham's The Reluctant Dragon. Really? Which I read when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I reread years later when um, my son and stepson did it uh, in a drama in college. And I went back to it. Outside of that, of course, everybody everybody likes Smog. I really like – well, Michael Swanwick's dragons aren't really machines as much as dragons. But in his most recent novel, uh, The Iron Dragon's Mother – it's kind of a petulant dragon it's kind of interesting it's uh, so I, I I like dragons that have an attitude <laughs> see I look back at
0: say I mean I'm trying I was trying to remember this morning the first dragon I encountered in fiction or whatever and they're so pervasive as a theme or a meme or an image uh, and it may even have been something like Pete's dragon when I was a little kid you know mm. um, because I mean, r- rather than the movies I mean, I, 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 I probably was nine when I when I, or when I read The Hobbit. So that's when I would have encountered Smaug. Yeah, but it may well have been something like this before because I can't quite place it. Um, and yet, it's one—it's one of those creatures themes, whatever—that never seems to age or tarnish. There's there's always more to do. It's like, you know, it's it, you never reach the end of it. There's always somebody else coming along to reinvent. You've got the kind of You've got, I mean, you, you can do Pern and you can do Temeraire and you can do Westeros say, yeah. and then there's always something else.
1: Well, it, 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 it's a universal – you, you can reinvent it for every your genre. You're right. I mean, Anne McCaffrey can decide, okay, they're biological and science fiction and then Swanwick can decide, okay, they're mechanical and it's another version of science fiction. Um, and uh, you're right, uh, Naomi Novik can decide, okay, let's just – pretend that they were there during the Napole- napoleonic wars they're kind of universally useful um uh, weapons who can also be your friend and to, okay to be honest the, my favorite dragons in the last 10 years have been in the three movies of how to train your dragon <laughs> those are terrific dragons they they're are, wonderful yeah, yeah. Dragons. so
0: so would cressida crowl be the preeminent d- dragon writer of our time
1: um i have i've never read any of these books. This is the odd thing I understand um, the tone is very similar i, I I'm not surprised at all because there's there's definitely an attitude in those books and uh uh that's, that's what I like about swanwick as well uh that there's there's a fair amount of humor in them and and the dragons that are just uh that are just there as natural disasters that what was the dra- not dragon slayer what was the Movie about dragons just destroying the world and humans trying to survive in the middle of it. It was. Oh, hang on! Wasn't uh, that one of the, um, oh, Pacific Rim or something? No, 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 not that. Not, because not, not, they're not, dragony. Not, but, but, they're very
0: dragony.
1: They're, they're, those guys. Gaija are not dragons. I mean, Godzilla is a different thing entirely, and in, in, in Rodan and that sort of thing. This was. Um, I can't remember the title of the movie right now, but uh, Ring of something. Uh, no, Ring of Fire is a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> Rain of Fire, Rain of, Rain of fire. fire. I never saw it. Never saw it. Well, okay. but I mean, well, it's Crescent...
0: it's... these days. Got of Crow, you've got Cressida Crowell. You've got Westeros. On the other hand, mm-hmm. I mean, and yet there's ne- there's no there's never a variation that doesn't seem to be active. I mean, look at uh, Zencho's Sorcerer to the Crown and her more Eastern dragons, mm-hmm. and uh, Elliot the Bedards as well. You right. know. There, there's, I mean, certainly, see, what's what's interesting to me right now, something that I thought about doing at a different time and may ultimately be sometime in the, the years to come do it, but wouldn't do it anytime soon, is to look at modern variations around the world of dragons in the sense that, you know, almost everywhere in the world has some kind of proto story of some form of dragon, some some mm-hmm. lizard variation, you know. And so there's has yeah, to be something think you think can do we'll, pulling that into the present day.
1: Well, I think this is one of the challenges. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the things that uh, fantasy writers and and science fiction writers figure this is something which is so done to death that I need to find a new way of doing it. And one of the things that I think is a tribute to the skill and imagination of our writers is they always do. There are still I'm, – I'm looking forward to – Uh, the dragons in your forthcoming dragon book uh, whenever that's done, because I know they're going to be different dragons. We're not supposed to cut it out. Fine. Okay. Just cut that part out.
0: I don't know what you're talking about, Gary. Okay. Uh, Nevertheless, nevertheless, actually there's one last thing to segue away from dragons, Mm -hmm. though maybe not Mm -hmm. entirely inappropriately. Now that I think about it, Mm -hmm. um, since we're unlikely to podcast before Friday, this mm-hmm. is the tenth anniversary of the death of Charles N. Brown from Locust, which was one of the reasons we started recording the podcast ten That's years ago. One of the reasons, absolutely.
1: And speaking of dragons, uh, <laughs> it could be <laughs> the fairly dragon difficult. Of Oakland, yeah, well, that would be. I, I, I think one of the things we, we we should acknowledge the fact that Charles Brown brought us together. He introduced hmm. us. Uh, we yep. worked for the same magazine at the same time. I think we need to uh Give some kind of a shout out to to Eliza Groen and trombi and and to Fran and to uh and and, and and to Kirsten and Tim and the people who have kept locust going for ten years after charles's death and at the time uh, a lot of discussion I was hearing among my own friends is that locust is dead, and it wasn't, and in many ways it's progressed beyond i'm going to guess what Charles would have allowed it to progress beyond. <laughs>
0: Oh, look, uh, I don't doubt that Locus Today isn't what he would have done, but then I think we've, you know, we're all long since embraced the fact that that's not the point. It is what it is no. and it has great merits, but it's also something to look back and kind of go, well, okay, that's te- 10 years have passed. 350 plus podcasts have passed. Right. And I realize if you're just coming in, you know, this is of little or no interest to you, which is why it's tacked at the very, very end of the podcast. But still, you know, in a slightly different world, this is the point where, I mean, on Sunday evening I'm flying to uh, San Francisco mm-hmm. and we'll go – well, su- Sunday evening – and we'll end up staying with my friend, our friend, Ellen Clagis. But in the past it would have been Charles's house in Oakland that I went mm-hmm. to before going up to Clarion West where I hope I will not disgrace myself. And, what? yeah, you know, look, it, it's, it's an interesting time. But we're at, th- at the end of an hour. We should probably wind up – we may get another one of these in – before I go, I don't know. But if not, um, there'll be another well, – if, if we don't get one more in, there's going to be a long break before
1: the next one. Well, the next one would be probably after we're both in Dublin, I suspect.
0: No, I think we can get one in, no. in the first week of August when I'm back home okay. after
1: Clarion. That that's,
0: should be possible.
1: Well, have a wonderful time at Clarion. I met some of your students when I was out for the Locus Awards, and uh, they're they're really bright. They're – Probably, you could probably do a lot of damage to them if you're not really careful, but... um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. Um, That may may be part of my fear. Well, no, I don't think... My my real fear is, I mean, I've met Clarion graduates, Mm -hmm. Gary. They're smarter than either of us.
1: Yeah, they are. I mean, you don't don't really want to get into a conversation with a 20-year-old who's been reading science fiction for 10 years because they've been reading better science fiction than you and I were when we were that age.
0: And they usually have like seven MAs and they're 19 or something. I don't know. It's all a bit kind of.
1: Yeah. It'll be but
0: fine. What could possibly go wrong?
1: You'll have a lot of fun. I, I, I'm, I'm going to hang out with Jack. He'll be right. It, 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 Jack it's a lot of fun. It's, 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 a, it's a bunch of people who want to write science fiction and, and they at some point in their lives are going to want to sell stories to you. So, they are not going to be intimidating at all because they will not allow themselves to be intimidating. They will simply quietly think to themselves and talk to each other overnight in the dorm rooms about, you think we can pull one over on the old guy? Um, They will. Anyway, on that cheery, cheery note, I will say farewell for now, and I will talk to you again soon. We will talk again soon. Thank you. Good night. And this has been the Good Street Podcast.